This program comes to you from the traditional lands of the Jajawarrung and Wadawurrung people. We pay respects to their elders past and present. We also acknowledge the traditional owners from all Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander lands you're listening from. Welcome to another episode of New Home, a podcast that shares with you some of the stories of migrant and refugee women living in regional Victoria. My name is Ali Hanley. Today I'm talking with Joy, a woman born in Kenya who migrated to Australia as a skilled worker, a midwife and a nurse. Joy now lives in Ballarat and is the chair of the Ballarat Regional Multicultural Council. She is passionate about helping other migrant and refugee women find their place in Australia and realise their dreams and ambitions. I was born in Mombasa, which is the second capital of Kenya. And it's actually a coastal city. It's traditional, it's made Muslim, Arabic, and then local people, they are called the Bantus, but they're actually mixed races. They've moved from like South of Africa and some from a bit, bit central, Tanzania, they've all come to Kenya. So my great-grandparents, they're all part of a group of freed slaves. They were resettled in Kenya in a town, they called it Freer Town. And apparently there was a Captain Freer who oversaw that resettlement. Can you tell a little bit of history about how they were slaves? They said they came from Malawi and they were enslaved by Arabs. And they were on the way to be shipped elsewhere. Then the British took over those slaves and they made them Christians. And some of them joined expeditions like expeditions to explore the Nile. And in fact, one of the ancestors there was actually one of the main guides who took Captain Speak or Mr. Speak, who was looking for the source of the Nile. And then when they came back, he was resettled also in this settlement as well. So they, they were, there were slaves who were taken by missionaries to carry their luggage. And then there were slaves who were taken by the British army to go and fight in India. And so what time period is this? First World War. And then into the Second World War. Because I remember my step-uncles saying they were Bombay-born. They spoke very good English. There were soldiers there and then they were resettled back into their communities where the other slave people were resettled in. In Mombasa, I grew up with my grandmother because my father died when I was a baby. And I had three other older siblings, two girls and a boy. And then my grandmother died. I was going to nursery school. I remember one day I ran home and I found an ambulance there, and they said, your grandmother died. But I still remember her very well. Yeah. My childhood was nice with my grandmother and my family around. Like, she'd wake up in the morning, and she'd make these puffs and put them in a little calico bag, you know. And it went around my neck, and it had two buns there. And that's, we didn't have a drink. We drank milk in school. and ran all the way to school, maybe four kilometres. We all just ran to school. You know, and got to school and did nursery school and played and did all that and then ran home by about three or back home. And I remember by six o'clock you have to be in the house and she'd wash me and put powder around me. I remember that powder, I can still smell it. Like talcum powder maybe. Yes. Yeah. And all over. But the most nice thing that I remember about my grandmother is when, when we had an, a nap in the afternoon, she wouldn't just wake us up, like, hey, wake up, it's time to wake up, get up, get up. She'd come and sing to us, you know. Keni endugu sasa nimchana, 
na ndege waimba nimbo za mchana my my children wake up it's time to wake up and the birds are singing wake up i remember that song very well so that was my childhood then and then shifted and changed when my grandmother died we moved homes my my auntie Grace she looked after us a lot. I know she did want to adopt us but my mother said no they're my children. I keep them. So my mom moved with us and she worked as a midwife and she was a migrant from Tanzania. And I know she didn't speak very good English but she was very good at her work and she could be understood when she spoke so she accredited herself and worked as a midwife in Kenya. and we lived in a little house two bedrooms did your mother speak is it tanzanian or a dialect kiswahili yes and what did you speak what was your swahili what? also we didn't we didn't have a language because my grandmother her parents and my my father they were all people who were displaced mm. so they took the local language and english so the older people like my father and my uncles they spoke very good english they were very well learned you know and and then we spoke english and swahili which is the local language and so what was your education like and your desire to learn yeah well my desire to learn was i think i was allowed to learn i went to a good school my stepfather was someone who had enough money he was all right and he took us to school it was good education and apart from really enforcing the christian tenets to us you know no 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 work on sunday you cook on saturday we eat on sunday there was high tea we played we sang and he played the piano and we did music so we did have a good life and we had lots of relatives and he invited them once a month or once every two months and we had big parties so they're going to big daddy they used to call him <laughs> big daddy yeah big daddy's invited us he really connected everyone very social very connected to his community mm. and they respected him i went to catholic high school was a girls school only and then i, I went to year 11 and 12 as well and that was also a girls school only that was away from home the 11 and 12 so i did have a very good education i was exposed to a lot of things in that school music arts and we had a choir that we we called the swinging stars and and we used to sing at hotels you know tourists would come we would sing them our local songs kiswahili songs and then they would give money but the money went into a kitty to help disadvantaged children with school fees And I must say it would be like year 9 here suddenly my school fees wasn't going to be paid I don't know what happened to my stepfather he wasn't going to pay it anymore I was very proud I said to mama I'll do everything but I don't want father Cochran to know that I can't pay school fees but one of the teachers told him that she needs to pay her exam fees and she hasn't paid them and I was a school captain then he came and said I know you have issues you may not want to talk about them I'll pay that for you don't count it down So he paid my school fees year 9 and 10 and my exam fees too. Sometimes you can want to go this way and, and actually your direction is this way. Initially I wanted to do psychology. That was what I really wanted to do at uni and I didn't get a place that's difficult in my country. So I didn't get in. But while I was out, I was out for two years. I taught at nursery school. Then I went and taught high school. I also used to do sewing. I taught myself how to sew and I'd sew for my friends and earned money that way as well. And I was sitting there one day and I had this light bulb moment. I was sewing. I was on the machine and I stopped and he goes, "What is it?" I said, "Hey, give me that di- directory." You know, my cousin Audrey is a nurse and Joyce is a nurse. And I know they studied at Nairobi Hospital. Can you give me that? I need to apply to that one. It just came and I applied. I sent my letter to the warden. 
Just out of nowhere. I just out of no, just out of nowhere. <laughs> I applied for nursing and I did my entry exam. I passed it, and then we did, you know, a, an interview face to face, and then I got in, just like that. Before I knew it, I was going to to do nursing. So I did nursing, and I'm like, I want to do pediatrics. But in order to do pediatrics, you had to do midwifery, do the neonatal care, everything, intensive care, all that neonatal nursing. You do it in midwifery. And then you do the midwifery part. So I did my midwifery. And then I went straight to work in the pediatric hospital because that's what I wanted to do. So I worked in pediatric hospital for almost four years, intensive care. And I got to see places because I got to go to Italy. And we stayed there five months with a colleague of mine. We studied Italian and we did intensive care there. So my first heart transplant. So that was the exposure I got to. And when I came home, I was just driven. I loved working with children babies and, and their parents and children. I just loved it. You know, my whole heart went into it. When I came back, I met my, my husband. He's not my ex-husband, but that's when I met him. We have what we call pre-wedding parties. People come, we collect money, we help you with your wedding. And he came to talk to me and that's where it started. And my friends said, oh, he's a good guy. You should agree to marry him and such and such. I said, but he's a Muslim. Oh, it doesn't matter, you know. So, you know, eventually, you know, we, we got married. <laughs> And had, to, and had, what, three children. He tried to move back to the city to work. He tried to do a lot of interviews in the city, but he couldn't get a job in the city. So I said, why don't you stay there and, you know, start a business? So he stayed there and I stayed in the city. And ha- we had the children in the city. They went to school in the city. He'd come every weekend and go and come and go and come. Yeah. And how far away was that? About three hours away. Okay. Yeah. So long distance. Long distance again, <laughs> yes. Yeah. And sometimes I'd take the kids and I'll go. Yeah. What was the moment where you decided as a couple to move into another country? One day he came and said, do you want to look into going abroad? I said, where do you want to go? And he said, oh, Britain. I said, oh, it's very hard to get to Britain right now. I don't want to go there. And then he said, well, what about Australia? We just went and got a book from the embassy. You know, there was no computer that time. And we started in 2001, the process, going to the embassy offices and asking them what we need to do, all these criteria. If you want to migrate to Australia, what do you do? If you're a skilled migrant, if you're a non-skilled migrant, what do you do? We just applied straight to the embassy. We did all the accreditation. He did his study. I did mine. And then every evening at work, before I leave work, when I'm on afternoon or night shift, I go to the computer. And then one day I saw this thing flashing, and it said, we're Adelaide Migration Office. For the government, we do migration. We can help you migrate faster. Can you send us this information? So I filled all information for myself and for my husband. And within a day, they sent me back a message saying, we need your skills and we will fast track your visa. So that's how quick it was. And were you able to find work straight away in Australia? Or did you have to train to uh, ticks and boxes in terms of Australian standards? We still had to ticks and boxes. But I was told when I come into Australia, I can go to Royal Children's, Monash and Bandura. So they said I could go to those hospitals. I just tell them I'm here, send my papers. It was just seven weeks of placement. So, yeah, so they they gave us all these options. And then they said, oh, you know, there's this nice place, very nice place in Horsham. So I said, all right, we'll go to Horsham. I was tired of Melbourne. We were here for one and a half weeks. And the kids were tired. I needed to put them to school. And they were funny because they said, Mom, are we in Australia yet? In Melbourne. So we'd be in the tram and look up, are we in Australia? I'm like, yeah, you are. 
I said, why are you asking that? There's no Australians here. <laughs> that was my second born. I said, what do you mean there's no Australians here? Mom, Australians, you know, Aborigines, they're Australians. They, they would see them on TV. I'd, I'd put them these documentaries for them to watch. And he said, no, Australians, they have an accent. You know, none of these are Australians. So, you know, Melbourne is very multicultural. So wherever we went, they didn't, to them, they didn't see Australians. They wanted to see Australians. So when we went to Horsham, we were booked into a motel just across the May Park. And then we saw the place, looked around. The boys came and said, Mom, can you tell Dad we want to stay here? We don't want to go back to Melbourne. I said, why? Well, there's Australians here. I said, what do you mean? Yeah, we saw them. We saw, we, when we went to, to get the chips yesterday with Dad, we saw some Australians. So they saw some, so I think an Aboriginal man and, and his wife. Then they saw Caucasians. So they're Australians, you know, so <laughs> it was funny. But I said, look, you, you, I don't mind staying because I, re I really just want, I'm, I'm tired. I need to settle. I need to be somewhere. But you are the ones who, who can convince your dad you want to stay here. You talk to him. Tell him what you feel. So they talked to him and he said, oh, you want to stay here? They said, yes. And he agreed. And how long did you live in Horsham? Nine and a half years. Yes. So that was their entire high school career? They were Yes, Horsham? the two big ones. My daughter, I brought her to Ballarat. Yeah. And have they changed their opinion about what an Australian is? <laughs> I think so. <laughs> <laughs> have you guys all got citizenship now? Yes, we, yeah. we, we were lucky. So you we were, were Australians. <laughs> uh, we're Australians, exactly. <laughs> we got citizenship as soon as we came. We came in March. And that's the thing about being in a Muslim community. They, they know each other and they inform each other what's going on. So somebody came and knocked at our door one day and they said, you're Muslims, aren't you? We said, yes. And he said, can I speak to your husband? And I said, yeah, he's in the house. So he got in and he sat with my husband and said, look, we're applying for citizenship. Do you know the government is going to change the rules in a few months? Do you want to do it now also as we're doing it? We can help you, you know, just like that. We didn't know them, but they were, they were Muslims from Pakistan. Wow. Yeah. And so did Horsham have a large Muslim community that you were able to tap into? It, while we were there, these people came. This couple that saw us, they also had just come like maybe a month ago when they were talking to us. And then some other families came. So when we landed in Horsham, there was us and no, there was no other Muslim family. But there was a family in Waraknabil. And then there was an influx of scientists who were Muslims. And then they all came together, and that's how now the Muslim community grew in Horsham and some Sudanese families as well. Did you find that the Horsham community was accepting of you as Muslims and as people of African descent? They were actually very welcoming when we got there. We were the only African family. There was a family that was mixed race. We found out later there was two families that were mixed race. But when they saw us, they said, you are the first African family that is here. So we were celebrities. <laughs> <laughs> They're excited to see you. Very excited to see us. We're in the papers and everything. But my, my neighbours, I had one young couple and the rest were older people. The young couple had small children and she would come in the morning and she'd knock at my door and say, I'm going shopping. I saw you walking yesterday. Can I get you some milk or bread? You don't have to walk. I'll buy it for you. you know? So I'd give her the money and she'd go, or she'd go and buy it for me. And my neighbours across the road... They would just cross over and say, mine's Bill and this is Josie, my wife, you know, and she's here more than when you want something, just cross over. 
So I got close to them, actually, Josie and Bill, and there was, there was Doug and Mary just across the road. And so Mary, you immediately had some very friendly neighbours. Very, 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 very friendly neighbours and very helpful, I must say. A few hostilities at work, I found that as much as I was trained, one, they didn't believe me that I had those skills. I really had to prove myself. I was always working at 200%. I had to you know, read all the protocols, just make sure I know everything more than they do. They can, but I cannot make a mistake. And they would never trust and know that actually I know my stuff. Occasionally they would say, well, she knows what she's doing, but let her in there. When it came to babies and machines, I felt like I was disenfranchised as far as my, my career was concerned because I went there to work in a pediatric unit in a neonatal unit, but I was not allowed in there. I had to do re-entry into midwifery and then went back and became a midwife. And I think I became a good midwife, you know. And I didn't know this until later on people said, you are my midwife and you are very good with me. And having been there eight years, you start to see people coming back. And as soon as you walk in, they say, ah, Joy, you were here last time, you know. And as they progress, they say, you know, last time I was having difficulty getting the baby out. Do you want me to do what you told me to do last time? Like, what did I tell you? you? You told me to do this and the baby just came out. I'm like, well, let's do it. Sure enough, it works, <laughs> you know. So that's how I gained confidence and they gained confidence in me because I just had to be more than enough. How did you then begin your work with the Joyful Hands business? So when How'd I was doing midwifery, I'd go into a room and mom would be struggling with this baby and all that, you know, say, oh, da, da, da. I can't manage. And I'm like, okay, you hold the baby like this. I will kind of show them how to settle the baby or hold them in such a way that the baby will be calm if they're crying. And if mom can't do it, I'll say, is it okay if I give to the partner to hold the baby? They say, yeah, that's okay. And I'll tell the partner, you need to relax, breathe in and out, and hold the baby to you. So one of them said, you're the baby whisperer. Why don't you do infant massage? I'm like, really? So that's how I started. I was feeling like the babies weren't getting enough of the care when they're born. Babies are born and then they're stretching, they're crying. Moms and dads need to know how to massage the babies. It could be mom, dad, or mom, mom, but also grandmother, grandfather. Auntie. Auntie. Uncle. People who are... Big brother. <laughs> yes. People who are near them who can be trusted. At home, this is what we would do to the babies. We would massage them because, they, you know, they've been in there. They need to be touched sometimes, you know, the hands and the legs. and But put oil in your hands so it's not rough. Some places you'll touch, you'll notice your baby relaxing. Some places you'll touch and they'll go, don't touch that one. Leave it alone. So just go, start slowly. I love the idea that the partner can offer that to the baby because often for the first few months of the baby's life, it's all about the mother and the feeding and the, yes. you know. And so for the partner to be able to learn that massage and be able to soothe and yes. it must be such a strong connecting process. Process, a bonding process. I think it's good also because mum had that baby, carried the baby for nine months. When the baby's out, she's tired. In Africa... We are looked after. As soon as you have a baby, somebody will come, even if it's your neighbor. They'll do a massage on you. They'll look out, they wash your baby for you, give you food. That will happen for days on end, almost about four weeks of care. We don't get that here. Mothers go home to work, to look after their babies. 
That's hard and lonely. I made that decision not to have a baby when I came here. I could see how hard it was. And my ex said, let's have one more baby. I said, if I have one more baby, are you ready to change a diaper? She goes, no, that's your job. And I said, all right. I will, if I ever get pregnant, I will have this baby and I will go straight home back to Kenya because oh, I had a good life. I had massages. Baby was, you know, you're just giving your baby feed, taken away, feed. Take, 40 days of bliss, you know, and you don't go out unless you have to. When I came to Ballarat, when my marriage broke down, somebody invited me to an intercultural football tournament for young people. So mainly Sudanese, African kids against the rest of Australia. So I went to that and I was supposed to be cooking, helping with the cooking. That was good for me. It was an outlet. And I met this lady and I, I looked at her and I said, I reckon I know you. Were you in Horsham? Did you get funding for us to have the Shosholoza choir? We had a choir in Horsham when all the Africans were there and the young people were there. And we performed at this event in Horsham. And Cherie is the one who got the funding for us to do that. So we said, oh, are you the one who did that funding? And she goes, yes. Shosholoza, yes. She said, yes, I know you, Joy, you know. So we started talking. She said, do you want to join? I've got these groups I do with multicultural women. Do you want to come? So for me, it was somewhere to go. Frankly speaking, when I came to Ballarat, I had no friends. It was just me, my daughter, work. And at work, they were just friends at work. So I knew people, but they were not my friends for them to invite me. Let's have a coffee. Let's have this. So I went to this multicultural group and I met all these different cultures. Sudanese, Indians, Vietnamese, Chinese. Some spoke English. Some spoke nothing, their language, you know. It was interesting because some of us were educated and did things, you know, accountants, nurses, midwives. She would say, there's a role that's come up. Would you like to join Women's Health Grampians? I've got this equality for all coming and they're looking for people. Do you want to be part of it? Oh, yeah. So we did equality for all. And then I did Stepping Stones, which is a Brotherhood of St. Lawrence enterprise training for being assisted with doing business. What I did Wherever I went, I'd tell the women, they would say, can you bring more? Oh, yeah, I'll get more. So then that's how I got the women to come. I said, there's something interesting. Do you want to come? There's something interesting. Do you want to come? And they came. It didn't matter English or not. Oh, I don't speak English. I don't know how to read and write. Don't worry. They'll show you how to do that. They just want to help you with your business. And I always encourage them to join. I said, no, try. Just come. Come and try. You never know where it will take you. Some of them have got employment through that. They've done social work and they've got work through that. So while I was with Stepping Stones, when I met Anne Foley, the Barrett Multicultural Council, and she said, do you want to be the women's representative? So I went back to Cherie again. I said, Cherie, what is a women's representative? What does it mean? And she said, well, I didn't do much last time I was a women's representative. We didn't do much. I said, okay, all right, I'll try it. So I tried it and that's when now Stepping Stones graduated we set the Women's Enterprise Center at the Welcome Center, BRMC. And then, so I just started working with them. We started thinking, brainstorming, yes, we can do this, we can do that. And then the year before, she said, oh, our chairperson is finishing. Do you want to be the chairman? I'm like, oh, really? How can I do that? She said, I'll support you. I'm like, I've never done that before. She goes, it's not hard. I'll support you. 
So there you go. Become the chairman. <laughs> but I said, I don't want to be called chairman. I want to be called chair. I don't want that gender difference. I just want to be the chair. So if somebody walks in, I'm the chair of BRMC. And if it's a man, he can call himself chair too. But we're all chairs. We're all having a role to play. What do you hope for other migrant and refugee women who are living regionally within this area? I want to advocate for them, for them to know that they can be part of the Australian workforce. They can be chairpersons, they can be CEOs, they can be treasurers. You know, they don't have to feel they can't reach those roles. They can get there and they can do it well because they've got everybody's support. Me being the chair as an African person, I was like, I just want to be an example to young people that you can get to this position, you can do it, and you can ask questions for support. Then the other thing, I want them to be able to give back if they can. Once they've been assisted by the multicultural councils, if they can come back and give back their experiences, even if they're volunteering a little bit, they can do that because it works a lot on on volunteers. And we have employed a lot of women who have got refugee background. They're now, you know, doing some work for the Barat Multicultural Council, you know in employment, in active bystander training, but those are paid roles. But I want people to know that they don't just have to be paid roles, they can give their time because that's what Australia is built on. It's built on volunteers. Most people volunteer a bit of their time and somebody gets benefits. So just for me, that's what I want to advocate for. And do you feel at home here in Ballarat? Yeah, I do. Right now my house is full. I love that there's people in the house. You know, they come home and we eat and talk and the Indian girls, there's culture. It doesn't matter. I can have anybody come in here and we're happy. But when they're not there, when this house is empty, and that's when I think, hmm, that's different. Uh, I don't know if I can live like this. I might have to get somebody to come in here and stay. So I do miss sometimes being with people, but um, I'm also like... I like my space too now. I like quiet times. You don't get that at home. In my sister's house, when I go home, there'll be somebody every minute for breakfast, for lunch, for dinner, for in between. Any time is visitor time. That's my sister's house. It's just what a revolving door. Yeah. Yes, that's it. In, out, in, there's certain private times you have, which you don't get at home until you go to sleep. <laughs> and even when you go to sleep, somebody will come and lock the door and say, Grandma, I want to sleep with you. I'm like, get out. <laughs> so that, that's a different lifestyle, different culture. Australia is a good place to be in. And you know, we do have opportunities. And that's what I was saying about us. We work with so many migrant women, I keep encouraging them that language is not a problem. They can be supported in different ways. That's the goodness about being in Australia. If language is your problem, they'll get somebody to support you to be able to get where you want to. You know, you can have a business and it can work. And even though your language is not perfect, people will support you. So long as you're doing a good job. For me, I'm passionate about women. I like to see women enterprising, being independent, confident. And I got that from my mother. My mother said to me, no matter what you do, no matter how much your husband has, no matter how much money he earns, don't ever leave your profession. Always have your work with you. Have something. So I've told that to my daughter. 
And I tell other ladies that. I say, just have something for yourself. doesn't matter what your husband, how much money he has. Have you. You can go out and do your thing. And if they say, oh, my language, say, that's all right. We have women who are doing businesses. And English is not their first language. They never knew how to read and write. So there's ways and means you get, you get that support here. You can. So Australia is a place where you can be what you want to be if you let them help you. Mm-hmm. Just get into the right channel, which there is. The multicultural councils are there. Pick you up and go. And lots of other little organizations are there to help you. So that's my passion. Mm-hmm. So Australia is a good country. We just have to work together. Thank you for listening to New Home. Follow the series on your favourite podcast app to get new episodes or visit sbs.com.au slash newhome. If you'd like to get in touch, email newhome at sbs.com.au. This series was created and produced by me, Ali Hanley, and Ginny Tan with additional editing by Max Gosford.